1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. And you can be seated. So we're continuing this morning through this section on the Lord's Supper. And like I mentioned last time, it is going to feel a little bit like a, a commentary on what we just did five minutes ago as we sort of unpack the truths we saw last week, uh, sort of the mess that the Corinthian church uh, was in, some of the sins that they were committing at the Lord's Supper, and that the pattern uh, that, the, that the Apostle Paul laid down was the pattern that he had received from Jesus and we saw in verses 23 through 26 what we call the words of institution. This is why we basically say these words every time we take the Lord's Supper, week in, week out. Um, and so that's what we saw last time, verses 17 through 26. This morning, we're, we're going to tackle the second half of this section. And I think it, it, it'll prove interesting because this is probably the most confusing and frankly misapplied section about the Lord's Supper that we have in the Bible uh, as one commentator said, there's probably more guilt and more shame in taking the Lord's Supper as a result of misunderstanding this section than, than any other section um, really in the book of 1 Corinthians. And most of it just comes down to bad interpretation, bad interpretation principles. And so this is how this section is usually explained. This is, this is how I understood it basically when I was a kid. So Paul says we need to examine ourselves and we don't want to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so we hear that, and, and so what we do is like like 23 seconds before we take the supper, we have this like self-examination time, right? It, it's like go time. And it's like, okay, i got to think about all the sins I've committed in the last week, and i got to confess them all, and i got to confess them all genuinely, 
like insincerity of heart, but I can't forget any. And we do this like self-diagnostic thing where we're like, okay, well, how many sins did I really commit? Did I, did I commit so many sins that I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper? Because if I take the Lord's Supper with too many sins, then God might just kill me. That's what the text says. So I don't want to commit that many sins. And then what we do is we create this self-righteous o-meter, right? Where, where the, like there's a line and we got to pass the line. We got to be above the line in order to take the Lord's Supper. Otherwise we're eating unworthily. And so we're, we're trying to spit out all the sin that we've committed and, and that sort of thing. And so, so, you know, I mean, most of us, we probably grade on a curve like, well, it wasn't that bad of a week, you know, and Jesus is merciful. And so, okay, well, maybe I can take the cracker and the juice and, and God won't kill me. Maybe I'll just get sick or something like that. Some of you guys, it's just the opposite. You do this self-diagnostic thing and, and you, you go, there's this line of self-righteousness and I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna get above that line. I mean, really, who's worthy to take the Lord's Supper? And so maybe you refrain forever from taking the Lord's Supper or maybe more often than you should. And so we just, we just start doing all this self-examination stuff. And do you know who that actually makes the Lord's Supper about? It makes it about us. When we do that, we completely miss the point of the whole Lord's Supper. Who's the Lord's Supper really about? It's about Jesus. That's who the Lord's Supper is really about. We're never going to reach some sort of sinless perfectionism in this life. We should be striving for holiness, striving for godliness, striving to put to death the sins of the flesh, these things that we're doing that are sin. But, but we're never, the, the, the point of the examination is not some self-righteous ometer that, you know, that, that we grade ourselves on on a curve and we either pass or fail. All those things that I mentioned that I struggled with in high school, um, that, that I think most people struggle with when they, when they think about taking the Lord's Supper and self-examination and whether you're not taking it worthily or not, I think that's pretty common. I, I want to encourage you this morning that none of those things are what the, the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Absolutely none of them. When we go to understand a passage, there's a phrase that we often use, and the phrase is, context is what? King. Context is king. And what we mean by that is all the stuff that was said before and all the stuff that was said after, the thing that we're talking about and reading about right now is, is influenced by what came before and what came after. And when we talk about context, we can think of like concentric circles. So what, what do the words in that verse mean? And what does the sentence mean? And what does the paragraph mean? And what does this whole section mean? What is the whole book talking about? What about that author? What did, what did Moses mean by all this? What did Paul mean by this? What did John mean by this? And then, then what does the whole Bible say about this? This is, these are the sort of the concentric circles of, of context. This is how we read any normal document. You click on an email to read the document. You don't just like skip two thirds down and go, what does this one sentence mean? You start at the beginning of the document and you read the whole thing. And that's how you know what that sentence means, actually, is, is through context. So here's the little secret here. The unworthy manner that makes someone guilty is referring to here about all the things that the Corinthians were doing in verses 17 through 22. That unworthy manner, it's getting drunk. It's, it's gorging yourself. It's being gluttonous at the Lord's Supper and the meal that they would have together. The unworthy manner are the fighting and the divisions and the hating each other and the humiliating each other at the Lord's Supper. That's what he's talking about. That's the unworthy manner that Paul has in mind in context. That, 
It's how they were taking it, all the, all the raucous nonsense that was going on. And you say, well, well, how do we really know that? I mean, he talked about that, but how do we know that? Because, because Paul provides us the solution. Notice the solution to fix it all in verse 33. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If any was hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give you directions when I come. He says, you want to know what the solution to your eating in an unworthy manner is? Just wait for each other. Stop drinking too much. Make sure that everybody has at least a little bit to eat. If you're hungry, go home. We don't need to have a love feast, a potluck. What we need is to simply be reminded of the body and blood of Jesus. If they, if they simply do the meal in, a, in, a, in an organized manner, it's actually going to solve a lot of things. So that's the punchline up front. That, that's where we're going. Okay, that's, that's the, the, the quick and dirty version. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of unpack the rest of the section in more detail. And then toward the end, I, I actually want to, to answer some of these questions that are on our mind. Should, should there ever be a time where, as a, a true, genuine believer, we don't take the Lord's Supper? Are there people who should not take the Lord's Supper? What, what would be that situation? And so I want to wrestle with that more toward the end. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Like I said, we saw the problems in the Corinthian church. In verses 17 through 22, we saw the pattern that Paul was given from Jesus to give to all of the churches in verses 23 through 26. The, this third section is actually the warning. The warning. What, what happens if, if, if a church continues to corrupt the Lord's Supper? Well, well, this is what we see in the warning. So let's, let's look at it again. I want to read just this little section and then we'll just kind of unpack it verse by verse. He says in verse 27, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So whatever else we can say about this paragraph, it's a warning. And it's a severe warning, isn't it? You start messing with the Lord's Supper, God can bring down judgment on us. And you say, well, why is this warning so severe? And it's, it's because of exactly what Andy said just a few minutes ago. Because what we are physically acting out here is the gospel message. This is the gospel message made visible for all of us to not only see, but to taste and to touch and to smell and to feel. This is such a sacred act because we are living this out. There are, there are only a few things in life where we act out the gospel message. Marriage is one of them, right? Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And so within our marriage, this is a sacred sort of a play that we're putting on. To reflect the love between Jesus and the church. Baptism is sacred because it's a living, breathing picture of the Lord Jesus raising someone from the dead in salvation. It's a picture of what has happened in their life. And the Lord's Supper is a living, breathing picture of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. This is not a small matter. This is the biggest matter in all of creation. This is the biggest matter in all of history. From before time began, in eternity past, God had planned that this is what all of eternity future would revolve around, is 
the sacrifice of Jesus. Everything leading up to it is about Jesus. Everything after it is about Jesus. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Two chapters later, he says that this was the definite plan of God to predestine his son to crucifixion. We often have conversations and maybe even arguments about predestination and election and who's chosen and how that all works and blah, blah, blah. Do you know that when the Bible talks about predestination as it relates between the father and the son, it's usually talking about Jesus being predestined to death? That that's what was on God's mind from all of eternity past was the death of his son, his subsequent resurrection and ascension, and of course, his coming. That's what it's talking about. And this is what we're going to be singing about for all of eternity future. We're going to be singing songs, you guys, 10, 20, 50 trillion years from now about something that happened 2,000 years ago. Because that's what all eternity revolves around, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the whole thing. This is the whole game right here. This, this is what we take part in week in, week out, is the reminder of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it doesn't just impact us. It's cosmically significant, meaning it affects more than just humanity. It affects all of creation, every spiritual being. Listen to Colossians 1. The Apostle Paul says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully and truly God. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by, do you remember what he says? The blood of his cross. This is cosmically significant. When Jesus comes again, there will be a a great reckoning. If you've ever reconciled your checkbook or your quicken or, or whatever, right? You put in all the credits and you put in all the debits and you make everything square out. Like that's the idea. When Jesus comes back, everybody is going to be judged based on what happened at the cross. You are either covered by the blood of Jesus or you are not covered by the blood of Jesus. For angels and spiritual beings, it's, it's, they are either for Jesus who died on the cross or they are against Jesus who died on the cross. But everything will be squared and will be reckoned on the day when Jesus comes back. The entire universe will be squared up. It will all be set to right. All those who are evil will be given their eternal just punishment. All those who are saints and all the holy angels will be given a gracious eternity of joy forever. But it will all be made square based on the one event that happened to the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. That is exactly what we celebrate every week, is what happened. Is this a significant meal? Absolutely. This is the gospel. We are, we are acting out living, breathing gospel message week in, week out. The thing that all of eternity hinges on. This is eternal significance here. And this matters to God. Because if we get this right, we are rightly proclaiming the gospel. If we get this wrong, we're corrupting the gospel. We're misrepresenting God's eternal plan. And we're misrepresenting God's cosmic plan that squares up the entire universe. This meal really isn't about us. It's not really about what we did. It's always and ever will be about Jesus and what he did. And so when we make the meal about us, we're, we're missing the point entirely. There's no self-righteousness meter. You know what? There, there actually is a self-righteousness meter, and we fail it every time. 
The only way we have any righteousness is through Jesus, through faith that he has imputed his righteousness to us. So when this meal gets corrupted by drunkenness or arrogance or division, we turn into the Corinthians. Like this giant frat party where there's a, a, a drunken mess and somehow people are trying to call it the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper when it turns into something like that. And Paul says, you know what? When the observance gets that corrupted where it's so unrecognizable, it's not the Lord's Supper that you you might as well not even eat it. Because the more you eat, the more judgment you're getting. So you, so you might as well just, just hold off and, and stave off at least some judgment. And that's why in verse 28, Paul calls for self-examination. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, so there is self-examination that should be happening, but not probably the kind that we usually think of. What he's talking about is the manner in which we observe the Lord's Supper. Is the manner in which we observe the Lord's Supper a helpful manner? Are we sober-minded? Are we orderly? I, I have to tell you, like, so, so we sit in the back, but it's just kind of beautiful how, like, everybody just figures out, like, how to get up and get their stuff. And, I mean, it, it's just, like, this nice, orderly thing. Like, you guys, that pleases the Lord. That, that pleases God. This, this might sound odd, but God really does care that when we get together, we do things in an orderly way. He loves order. God is, in fact, a God of order. In fact, turn over a couple of chapters to 1 Corinthians 14. We're going to get into this in a little bit, but the, the Corinthian church was having problems with the way they expressed their spiritual gifts, specifically speaking in tongues and specifically prophecy. And, and, and we'll, we'll talk about all that was going on and there's craziness going on about all these spiritual gifts and there's clamoring and it's, it's just, it's just nonsense. It's bonkers in the Corinthian church. And you know what the Apostle Paul's solution is? He goes, you guys need a better order of service. That's what he says. You need a better liturgy. That's what a liturgy is. It's just an order that we do things. It's like you need to tighten up your order of service a little bit and all this speaking in tongues craziness and all this prophecy craziness will go away. That's probably not what we would expect to hear. But that's exactly what he says. Look at verses 26 through 33. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but God of peace. But Paul says, you know, whatever craziness is going on, it's not like he had FaceTime, you know, or, or a telephone or email where, you know, they could just go back and forth real quick and, and explain the whole situation. Like this was a letter that would take months to get to him. And he'd try and understand the whole situation. And then he sent a, a letter months back. Right? I mean, he's trying to figure it all out. He goes, you know what's going to solve all this? Some principles to guard your order of service. Because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Take turns. 
with speaking in tongues. Take turns with prophesy, and this whole thing will resolve itself. Not have a big conference, not, not kick people out, not question the legitimacy of tongues in the service. Order of service. He's a God of peace. He likes things orderly. He doesn't like confusion. He doesn't like drunkenness. He doesn't like people going crazy over the Lord's Supper. It's just a solid liturgy. And that's one of the most spiritual things we can do together. You realize that heaven is not going to be one big free-for-all, right? It's not like dropping your kids off at the arcade, you know, and they, and they go in and they you know, go crazy and they never see each other again. Like, there's going to be orders of service in heaven. There's going to be synchronized watches. There's going to be, we're all going to be on the same page in heaven, singing the same songs at the same time. Like, that's what, that's what heaven's going to look like. Somehow, people from every tribe and tongue, we're all going to be singing the same thing together, and we're all going to understand it together. God loves order. He loves peace. Random orders of service do not bring God glory. Spontaneous orders of service do not bring God glory. Feeling the spirit move, whatever that means, does not bring God glory. Order does. Peace does. And especially when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And that's what he's getting back at back in chapter 11. Verse 28, let a person examine himself and in that way, so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It brings God glory when there's order at the table. When we're keenly aware of people around us and how our actions affect the church. Notice verse 29 of chapter 11. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean, to discern the body? There's, there's a lot of takes on that. Does it, does it mean that the body of Jesus that is represented in the bread that we eat? What, what's, what's the body? Well, I, I think we can figure out what it means just based, again, on the context. The problem in the Corinthian church is that they're not thinking about other people. They're only thinking about themselves. They're self-centered when they take. That's why they're getting drunk. All the wine's for me. And that's why they're being gluttonous. All the food's for me. They're self-centered. So I think his point is they're not discerning the body of Christ around them. They're, they're not, by discerning, he means they're not, they're not taking into account what's going on with the other people of God in church with them. They're so focused on themselves and what they're doing and getting their food and getting their drink that they forget the church that's sitting right next to them. He says, no, we've got to discern the body of Christ around us. We can't be so self-absorbed that we don't see that we're abusing one another and not even knowing it. So he says, you need to discern the body of Christ. When you take the Lord's Supper, you need to take a look around. What's going on in the congregation? What's happening around us? Is there something that we're doing that's causing my brother to stumble? Is our, our brother's not able to take the meal for some reason? Because it's not easy for them to get or whatever. Is everyone being served well? Can they come and partake of the benefits of the Lord's Supper? And I just have to say, this goes to a bigger principle as, as, as a church as well. And that's, that's not just at the table do we need to understand what's going on in our congregation. It's at all times when we're here together do we understand what's going on in our congregation. Are we serving one another in our congregation? Or do we get so accustomed to our own routine, even on Sunday morning, that we come in and just sort of do our own thing and we forget about everyone else around us? We need to be aware of what's going on. I saw this little thing on social media uh, that said three rules for Sunday mornings, and I like it. There's three rules. Rule number one, a person who's sitting alone is an emergency. 
If they're sitting alone, that's a problem. Why are they sitting alone? Are they having a rough go? We should go over there and minister to them. We should talk to them. What's, what's happening? Number two, friends can wait. Friends can, we're, there are friends because we probably see them outside of church too, right? We, we already have a relationship, so we need to go meet those other believers that maybe we don't know as well. And number three, introduce a new person to someone else. I like that because the Bible says that when the church gathers together, it's like a household. It's like if, if we were having this, you know, this meeting in your house, how would you treat the people that came in and out? You, you would want to be a good host. You would want to make sure, hey, they're taken care of. They're doing all right. That sort of thing. Well, you guys, this is our house. The, the building, you know, whatever. But it, the people together. And we need to be concerned about what's going on with everybody in the gathering. We need to be on the lookout at all times. Here Paul says that specifically in reference to the Lord's Supper. We need to discern the body. Look around. You know, if somebody had a broken leg or something, and they can't, you know, hobble up here and hold their stuff with the crutches and all that, you know, can we, can we get the elements and serve it to them? Is there something else going on? How can we serve the body at the Lord's Supper? That's part of what it is to examine ourselves. If we don't examine ourselves, specifically at the Lord's Supper, Paul says there's judgment to be had. And he's not abstract, is he? He's not vague at all. Look at verse 30. He says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. So if you're taking the Lord's Supper and you don't care about anyone else, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And then he says, verse 30, excuse me, that was verse 29, verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's scary. That's scary. Coming up here and not paying attention to anyone else in the congregation, only focusing on yourself is grounds for God's discipline in our lives. God can do that. And there's really just no other way to to get around this. He says, that is why some of you are weak and some of you are ill and some of you have died. God's taken people out of the game for how they mishandled the Lord's Supper because they were so selfish at the Lord's Supper. He's like, you know what? It's just too much. It's not about you. It's about me. And so I'm going to take you out of the game. That's scary. There's no dancing around it. The one thing I want to be careful of is that we don't take that warning and just sort of walk around in fear our whole lives. Like, oh, well, I might mess it up and, you know, God's going to snap, you know, and then lightning bolt out of heaven, greasy spot where I was, you know. So that, that's not how God wants it to be. God doesn't just randomly slaughter his own people on a whim. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not going to condemn us to hell. But discipline is on the table. I mean, let's, let's be clear, right? Our lives are not our own. God can do whatever he wants with our lives. There have been plenty of people who are faithful to God who have been martyrs for the gospel. Right? God takes them out of the game. If he's taken faithful people out of the game... As martyrs, he can certainly take us who might be in disobedient sin. He might give us illness or give us weakness. And by the way, these things are actually for our own good. Look over at Hebrews chapter 12 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 12. This section is about how God disciplines his children, and he disciplines us out of love. And we need to be reminded of this. 
So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, we see, we see this principle that's really first examined in Proverbs, but, but the author of Hebrews talks about it a little bit more. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3, he says, Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one who he what? He loves. The discipline comes because of love. And he chastises every son whom he receives. Then he goes on in verse 7. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you are a son of God, know this, he will discipline you because he loves us. And he wants us not to stay where we're at, but he wants to train us into holiness, train us into righteousness, to be built up in the faith. And the cool thing is God does not make mistakes in discipline. I'm a father and I've made mistakes in discipline. No amens. But I've made mistakes. God never makes a mistake. Every spanking you get is right where it needs to be with the exact amount of force it needs to have. Why? Because God loves you and he loves you perfectly. And he wants to see you grow in holiness. Sometimes it's to get our attention, to bring repentance. And look what our attitude should be. So we know that God will spank us. We know that he'll do it perfectly. Maybe you're in the middle of being disciplined right now for some stuff that you did. What's your attitude? Oh, man, I, I hate this. No, what should your attitude be? Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Stop moping. Get up. Strengthen your knees. Stand up straight. Get your hands off the ground and get going. God's not spanking you because he hates you. He's spanking you because he loves you. And he wants you to be holy and to keep going. That's the discipline that the Lord gives us. And it's all born out of love. God will never discipline us to break us. He will only discipline us out of love to restore us to holy living. And actually, that's what Paul's getting back, back getting to back in 1 Corinthians 11. He wants to discipline us out of love. And then notice the contrast in verse 30 through 32, back in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. Look, if we just examined ourselves and made sure that, that we're not doing this whole thing in a corrupt manner, we'd be fine. 
So, so we need to have a little self-examination, a little reflection to make sure the manner in which we're doing this is holy. We're not getting drunk. We're not gorging ourselves. It's going to be hard to get drunk on that little thimble. But you get the idea. But it's the manner that we do this. And he says, you don't want to get disciplined. You don't want to be judged by God. Then do some self-examination. Examine your own self. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the rest of the world. That's pretty amazing. Do you realize that God would rather take you out of the game? He'd rather take me out of the game than send you to hell. If you are a child of God through faith, he'd rather take you out of the game. He'd rather end your life than send you to hell. And that's all still out of love. It's all still out of love. If we go so wayward, he's like, you know what? It's just going to be better to bring you home. And so he brings us home. It's the best thing for us. All of this brings us back around, of course, to the practical changes that the Corinthians need to make. And we can't overlook this. Sometimes, you guys, the sin that we're struggling with in life can just be solved with some practical changes. We, we overlook that. I mean, th- these are the practical changes he has in mind. It's, it's pretty simple. So then, my brothers, verse 33... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I mean, it's, that's a pretty solution. Just, just wait for each other. Make sure everybody's got a little bit. This, is, this passage, by the way, is why we usually, you know, we, we all grab the elements and then we wait and go back and, and we take it together. It's, it's kind of kind of a misunderstanding of, of, of what he's trying to do. But I, but I think the heart behind that is correct, that, that we do want to take it together. We do want to be in order together. Now, I've been in some places where, you know, people can come up and they take the elements, and they go back to their chair, and, you know, they just take it, you know, when they're ready on their own time. I think that's fine. I don't think we have to, like, all eat, the, you know, all hear the crunch at the exact same time and, you know, all hear the swish and all, you know, hear the little cups tinking back in the chair, all at the exact I don't think that's what God's exactly after i don't think it has to be completely synchronized in that way i think what he's doing here a little bit is actually making a distinction between the love feast sort of the potluck food side of it and the lord's supper remember that the corinthians did these things together you ever show up to a potluck and there's actually not all that much food yeah that's happened a few times right you're like well, where did it all go i I'm here five minutes late and like there's no mate like I can get a cookie like that's that's all I got can I tell you something like a potluck and the love feast of old it's not really about the food you realize that right like like really what it's about is staving off hunger for just a little bit of time so that we can enjoy fellowship with one another we can pray for one another we can encourage one another we can see what's going on with one another it's not like going down to golden corral and you know judging their banquet feast like, that's not the point of a potluck. Like, like the potluck is just so we can, can linger just a little bit longer to encourage the church. Now, you guys should bring a lot of food next week, just out of principle. Okay? Good food. Sin's going to feel weird. But the point is just to hang out with each other, you guys. To love each other, encourage each other, pray for each other. That's really what it is. I love the last line of what he says in verse 34. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Do you realize this was not the only problem that they had at the Lord's Supper? Like, there were additional problems. means like, there's so much, I can't write about it right now. Like, we'll catch up later. But this is what we need to know about the Lord's Supper. 
Okay, let me just address a few practical things about the Lord's Supper that I hope you'll find helpful. Is there ever a time to not take the Lord's Supper? Is there ever a time? I'd say there's a, there's a few times, okay? Number one, according to Paul, if the Lord's Supper becomes a drunken free-for-all, it's better not to take. So I, I don't think we're in much danger of that happening here, but if there ever was a church situation where that might be happening, then, then it would just be better to back out and not heap judgment upon us. But what about us personally? I, I think if you're not a believer, don't take the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper is really only for believers. When we take, like Andy said, when we take this, what we're proclaiming as we eat and drink is actually, I believe the gospel message. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose again. He is my Lord and I am following him in holiness and in righteousness. And, and as we take, there's a, a way in which we are actually proclaiming that to one another. And so if that's not you, you shouldn't be taking it because you don't actually believe that. And that's okay. There, there, every Sunday, there's, there's, there's plenty of people who don't take the Lord's Supper for one reason or another. It's okay to not take it. You don't have to. You don't have to feel compelled to just because you're here. Some people seem to think that if an unbeliever takes the Lord's Supper, somehow their judgment is greater. I guess the, could, that could be the case, but that's not even what Paul's talking about either. He's talking about, actually, if you're a believer and you take it in a bad manner, the judgment is greater. I think the issue with an unbeliever is just more improper. Another reason not to take the Lord's Supper if you're a believer is if you haven't been baptized. And I've, I've mentioned this before. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized first. That's really the first sacrament you need to follow. That's the first command that the Lord Jesus gives. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, like that's the sac- if you If you're not willing to be baptized, then, then there's no reason to come to the table. That's really your first step of obedience. Jesus doesn't say go into all the world preaching the gospel and taking the Lord's Supper. Like, so we have an order situation going on here. And when you read through the book of Acts, you see someone believes, they get baptized, and then they're welcome into the whole suite of, of the things that, that the church does together, including fellowship, prayer, Lord's Supper, and so on. Maybe the third time, the third situation, is if you are harboring unrepentant sin in your life. If you're harboring unrepentant sin in your life. I'm not talking about like you messed up this week and said four-letter words too often. Or, or, or you know, some other thing. I'm talking about like like you've got a sin, you know it. You know you've got a sin. You have no intention of repenting from it. You've got no intention of, of trying to put that thing to death or getting any sort of help, that sort of thing. And, and, and you're just messing around. Why not take? Because that's hypocrisy. Because when we take, we are, we are taking, proclaiming Jesus is my Lord. He is my master and I am following him in obedience. And if you're harboring something in your heart, he ain't your Lord. You're not following him in obedience. You're, you, are, you are proclaiming his name in vain, really, is what you're doing. You go, well, what's the solution to that? You know what the solution to that is? Turn from your sin. Get some help, whatever you need, accountability, whatever. And turn from your sin and come take. You say, well, what? I don't feel like I'm hiding it, but I keep falling into the same sin every week. I, I keep trying to put this to death, and I hate it, and I, I confess, and, and what do I do? Take the Lord's Supper. You need the Lord's Supper. 
If you're trying to put those sins to death, if you are striving for holiness and you feel weary in your battle, you need this because you need to be reminded week in, week out, Jesus has covered those sins. They're gone as far as the east is from the west. And you need this where you get the full benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus, including the Holy Spirit who empowers you on to obedience. You need to be reminded of that week in, week out as you battle the flesh, you battle the world, and you battle sin. You need this meal to strengthen you. You need this meal to be reminded that the Spirit is on your side. And you can come and you can take freely of his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this meal that is a reminder of your grace and the sacrifice of your Son. Lord, we pray that we would always keep this meal holy and sacred, that you would be pleased in us, and that we would be refreshed in the grace of God week by week. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.